You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Teller from Jerusalem. I'm your host, Hanok Teller. This and the subsequent podcast were greatly assisted by Daniel Gordis's monumental work, Israel, A Concise History of a Nation Reborn. By 1930, the Yishuv, which means the settlement in Israel, looked nothing like it had during the first two Aliyot, the first two ascents of waves of immigration to Israel. In 1932, Israel established a Maccabiah, or the Maccabiah Games, which was to have competition between Jewish men and women. Ideologically, it was to display a new muscular Jew. <laughs> By definition, that would be new. And it would serve also public relations and PR for Israel to interest Jews abroad to settle in Palestine. Welcome to the 19th Maccabiah opening ceremony. Again, can you imagine 1932? It's not even Israel, it's Palestine. And the people locally participating, to think what it would be at the number 19 Maccabea, it's, it's, it's incomprehensible. Yeah, it's, and don't forget also, Steve, back in 1932, there were a, a number of Arab countries participating, Syria and Egypt among them. Also, uh, Iran had a number of uh, Jewish participants in the early Maccabea games. Of course, now there's about 30,000 Jews living in Iran, but they don't have the freedom to go back and forth to Israel like the good old days. This was also a time that folk dancing became a strong Israeli staple. Israeli folk dancing became a central feature of Zionist culture. It also became an export from Israeli culture all around the world. The influx of German immigrants led to a dramatic rise of students at the Hebrew University. Because German Jews primarily, and also some middle-class Polish Jews, came to Israel with financial assets, Palestine, for the very first time, began to open up department stores and upscale cafes. Money from the transfer agreement, that was the method to get money out of Germany, which had a Nazi blessing, or at least it was convoluted enough that the Germans initially could agree to getting any money from the Jews back to the Jews, over which Arlozarov had apparently been murdered, began to flow into the settlement in Israel. Jews bought land from Arabs, who were more than willing to exchange their property, which usually consisted of swampy or arid, infertile rocky tracts, for cash. But what looked like to the Yishuv as progress, it looked like progress for the Israeli settlement, began to appear to the Arabs as dislocation. They felt that their way of life was being displaced by the rapidly growing tide of Jewish immigration. And once again, Arab frustration found expression only in explosive violence beginning the Arab Revolt of 1936 through 1939. The Arab reaction to the unwanted Jewish presence was terror and violence. They began to burn farmland that Jews had cleared. They began attacking Jewish homes. The Arabs conducted strikes in the hope that by striking and not going to work, they would harm and cripple Israel's economy. The result was just the opposite. 
the Arabs unwittingly boosted Jewish business, because whenever there's right nature abhors a vacuum. Jewish shops and factories filled the vacuum, and the Jewish economy expanded and thrived. The violent Arab reactions made it difficult for the Israelis who thought that coexistence was possible to reassess the new situation. They had always assumed uh, yeah, 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 that we could get along together. And this difficulty which they encountered has profoundly persisted to this very day. Israeli leftists believe that coexistence and harmony is possible even as Arab mobs living in Israeli cities, in Israeli cities where they have equal rights, far superior education, medical facilities, and far superior chances to advance than anywhere in the Arab world where these Arab populations riot, burn synagogues, and attempt to lynch their Jewish neighbors. Coexistence, they believe, that is, the leftists of today, given a chance, will just magically appear. Our episode today is particularly focused upon the folly of appeasement. Naive Israelis in the 1930s were forced to reassess their positions. Nearly 80 years of instructive history later, the leftists of today are less prone to reassess their position. And this reminds me of a story that was brought to my attention about an Israeli general who went on vacation far away to Alaska. And there he was, about to go on his fishing trip, as everyone who goes to Alaska wants to go fishing. So he was ready to go salmon fishing, and the guide was about to deposit him on at the brook where he would fish all day long. He asked the guide, what happens if a bear is a peer. And the guide said, don't worry about it. In all my years, bears just don't appear. You go fishing and don't worry. At the end of the day, I'll pick you up. He said, but what if a bear appears? Don't worry about it. Nothing's going to happen. No sooner had the guide left and there staring right at him was a bear. What the guide had told him was, If a bear does appear, just say, Bear, this is my fishing spot. I was here first. Now just go away. And now the bear is looking him in the eye, and he uh, is terrified. Now this is an Israeli general. He's faced many enemies before. In a barely audible tone, he whispers, Bear, this is my spot. I was here first. The bear looks at him quizzically. And then, realizing he's got seconds to make a move, and the move was not to run away, Everyone but everyone but everyone knows a bear is faster than a man. So then in a very stentorian voice, he says, Bear, this is my fishing spot, and I was here first. Now get the cotton picking out of here. The bear looked at him and then left. At the end of the day, the guy picked him up, and the Israeli general told, the general's name is Effie Tom. he told the guide what happened. And he said, I said what you said very forcefully, and the bear left. And he explained that when you stand your ground, the bear understands that you are not prey. Because bears are natural predators. They look at everyone in terms of prey. They look at everyone in terms animal or human in terms of supper. But when you stand your ground, then they realize you're not backing off and you're not prey. We have to tell our enemies that we were here first. So just back off because we are not, we're not leaving. The standard Jewish reaction to Arab violence was to establish more villages at the time. The standard reaction in our contemporaneous days, in the days of the Likud government, 
is to act to Arab terror by establishing more outposts, and this too has seriously waned. Not that the Arab terror has waned, but reacting with new settlements has definitely waned. There are many settlements that are named after people that were murdered or named after people who the settlement is attempting to avenge. The reason that there are less and less settlements for all these acts of terror, I think, is a consequence of American and European pressure. The Arabs in the late 1930s would not tolerate Jewish expansion. Hospitality and welcoming penniless refugees was apparently not their strong suit, and they informed the British in no uncertain terms that they insisted upon a total cessation of Jewish immigration, and they called upon a total freeze of land sales to Jews. The initial British response was not especially sympathetic to the Arabs, for the British also were targeted in the Arab revolt. But this changed. It changed quickly, and it changed totally. The British thought that to calm the Arabs and stop further violence, they should appease the Arab rioting by limiting, eventually curtailing, Jewish immigration. The idea of curtailing violence by appeasing is a common mistake. And although the British do not have a copyright on this, no one can deny that they excel in this regard. The classic example is Neville Chamberlain in the Munich Conference, September 30th, 1938. Quick reminder, uh, 1938 was a watershed year in destruction for Jewry, and it certainly was not a good year for the world at large. Beginning in March of 1938 was the Anschluss. There's a referendum in Austria, and the Austrians voted 99.7%. What happened to 180,000 Jews? Forgot to vote that day. Very democratic elections. The Austrians decided they wanted to be taken over by the Nazi government. For three days, they danced in the streets, and then they realized, ah, yeah, 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 what it's like to live under a Nazi dictatorship. But then, of course, it was far, far too late. Then comes the fall of 1938, and there is the Munich Conference. The Munich Conference becomes the textbook definition, if not a synonym, of the folly of appeasement to a dictator or to a terrorist. What happened was, and I'll give you some news clips to highlight this, is that Germany has a conference where England and France are invited, and in Munich, Neville Chamberlain, the leader of Great Britain, a man who had never boarded even a plane before, travels to Germany to convince Hitler not to take over Sudetenland, effectively most of Czechoslovakia. And Hitler's jumping up and down like an ape. Chamberlain's terrified, and he gives in. He buckles and caves. The leader of Great Britain caves to this madman jumping up and down. And he says to him afterwards, he says, Herr Hitler, of course you won't ask for anything more. Of course not. Ha ha. So let's listen to some of these clips. This is the Gaumont British News, presenting the world to the world. Yes, no man has ever deserved more richly the title of peacemaker than Mr. Chamberlain leaving for the four-power conference at Munich. And there were happy faces among the British ministers who came to Heston to wish the Premier Godspeed on his journey. Chamberlain's comments after the conference... I want to say that the settlement of the Czechoslovakian problem, which has now been achieved 
is, in my view, only the prelude to a larger settlement in which all Europe may find peace. This is all pretty well sum- summarized in History Pod's description of the ultimate act of failed appeasement. The Prime Minister decides to fly to a personal meeting with the German Chancellor. The tension eases, as if the world had suddenly seen a gleam of hope in the darkness of despair. For behind those days of crisis has loomed a dark spectre. Yet the world has realized that war over three and a half million people in the present land of Bohemia would be a folly and a crime. So at Heston, after 69 years of a busy life, Mr. Chamberlain makes his first trip in a plane. There's proof of his determination. The German Chancellor, because the situation seems to me to be one in which discussion between him and me may have useful consequences. My policy has always been to try to ensure peace and the Führer's ready acceptance of my suggestion encourages me to hope that my visit to him will not be without result. So as Chamberlain held a document in his hand, Peace in Our Time, and the British cheered him, they should have booed him. The conclusion, the take-home message is, if you give in to dictator, you do not achieve appeasement. What you achieve is more dictation. In mid-1936, the British proposed limiting Jewish immigration to 4,500 for the rest of the year. In 1935, just one year before, Jewish immigration consisted of 61,000. By proposing a cap to 9,000 a year, the British were effectively mandating an 85% reduction in Jewish immigration. Astonishingly, but it's not astonishingly if you're familiar with Arafat or Erdogan of Turkey, the Arabs even rejected this and insisted that no more Jews could be allowed in. The Arab violence continued, and British who thought that violence would subside on its own, and they did not wish to risk Anglo-Arab relations, read, they didn't want to risk their oil, responded to Arab violence with restraint. But their policy was an utter failure, and they saw how mistaken they were. Large numbers of Jews, Arabs, and British were dead. The next British reaction was to send more soldiers to Palestine, and they instituted a nightly curfew. British knew that what was really needed was a long-term solution, and to explore this solution, what they did was they created the Peel Commission as it was headed by Lord William Peel. The Peel Commission arrived in November of 1936 to survey the land and to hear from both Jews and Arabs and Jewish and Arab representatives. In July 1937, the Commission released its 400-page findings, which included also maps. The commission concluded that since the Jewish and Arab populations and their positions were so opposed, it would be unlikely that they would ever agree to share territory. And therefore their solution was, quite novel at the time, partition. This was the very first time that a division was proposed to settle the land among the two people who claimed it. It assigned but a small sliver of land to the Jews. Jerusalem and Bethlehem were to be under international mandate, and the rest would be for the Arabs, other than that small sliver, awarded to the Jews. And anyways, the British assumed that Arab land would anyway would fit into 
part of Transjordan. The commission also called for a population transfer to separate the Jewish and Arab communities. In the future, the subject of population transfers would become a highly contentious issue. What was to be Jewish property was substantially smaller than what the Jews had expected. Peel conceded this. Peel conceded that what was initially understood under the Balfour Declaration was to be all of Israel, including Gaza and Transjordan. But what they were now proposing was but a small fraction of that land. 20% was allocated to the Jews, while over 70% was allocated to the Arabs. Many Zionistic leaders, including Jabotinsky, were outraged by the British reneging what they considered to be implied in the Balfour Declaration. They were already despondent of what Churchill had proposed in 1921 by establishing Transjordan. However, Weizmann and Ben-Gurion rallied behind the commission proposal, aware that actually it was an astounding achievement considering that just 40 years earlier had passed since the first Zionist Congress. Herzl would have given anything for any stake in the Jewish land. So this sliver of land, as small and as puny as it was, was a godsend. As puny as what the Peel Commission was offering, they felt it would be foolhardy to reject it. Thus, in August 1937, there was a Zionist Congress which voted, and they approved, albeit not very enthusiastically, what the Peel Commission was offering. However, Arabs rejected the Commission's recommendations out of hand. They were receiving over 45% more than any reasonable person thought they would ever be awarded. But a pattern had been established for all future Israeli-Palestinian negotiations. Yasser Arafat will be forever remembered for insisting upon receiving everything he demanded and nothing less. The consequence will be terror and unceasing attacks upon innocent civilians unless every single demand is given into. Arafat earned this infamy, very famously as President Clinton said. Arafat called him, this is reported in Newsweek magazine, Arafat called him three days before Clinton left office and said to him, Mr. President, you are a great man. And Clinton records, he responded, the heck I am. I'm a colossal failure, and you, Arafat, made me one. But as Teller from Jerusalem has meticulously detailed, Arafat had a mentor who taught him the tricks of deception and extortion. The Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, Hajjamin al-Husseini, saw to it that the Arab street opposed what extraordinarily generous offer that the Peel Commission gave, and the way to react, to reject, was with violence. And that became standard procedure. The Arabs always directed their rejection in violence, not only against the Jews, but also against the British. One member of the Peel Commission was shot by an Arab on his way to church. The British wanted to appease the Arabs at the very same way that Neville Chairman wished to appease Hitler in Munich. But as we've already said, that giving in and appeasing a dictator, or one with dictatorial personalities, will never be beneficial. The leaders of the Jewish settlement in Israel presented the British a plan to save 10,000 Jewish children from Germany and bring them to Palestine. At the very same time, the Mufti requested that British release the Arab prisoners which they were holding captive. There were no lives at stake in the Arab request, yet the British agreed to it. Yet they denied the Yishuv, the Israeli settlement's request, to save 10,000 children from definite death. 
And it cannot be that the British were ignorant at the plight of the Jews, for this was already after Kristallnacht, which was November 9th and 10th, 1938. And it was front page news. It was before the military censor. It's nearly one year before the war. Our time has lapsed, so next time we'll give a brief summary of Kristallnacht and pick up the story. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting the TFJ code, you receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to telefromjerusalem.com.